please welcome um, Dr. Anna Segesbeel to come up and talk about the Book of the Twelve and Chaos. Well, thank you for that very, very kind introduction. I hope I can be funny. We'll see. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not making any promises. Um, but my, um, my little talk this evening is about when God is chaotic in the Book of the Twelve. And it's okay if you don't know what the Book of the Twelve is. That's the next slide. Uh, so, there you go. So these, these little tiny prophetic books near the end of the Old Testament, um, Hosea, all the way through Malachi, you might be used to calling them the minor prophets. And that is because Augustine one day said, we'll call these the minor prophets. Um, and I don't think he meant anything by it. Like, I don't think he wanted to be mean or, like, denigrate them and be like, well, they're not that important. Instead, I think what he was doing was like, well, they're kind of short. And they are. Um, however, Jewish tradition has consistently referred to these books of the Bible as the book of the 12. And with good reason. There are 12 teeny tiny prophets. And in antiquity, they were all housed on one scroll. Just like the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, we also have the book of the 12. And one of the really nice things about these individual books is that when you read them all together, you get a continual narrative. And poor Cindy has heard this illustration before, but if you have seen Mamma Mia, you already understand the Book of the Twelve. Because what Mamma Mia does, this glorious musical, is it takes individual Abba songs and puts them all together in this grand narrative of a young woman looking for her father, right? And so that is basically what's going on in the Book of the Twelve. We take these individual, teeny tiny prophetic books, and we put them together to tell a much larger story. And this is how the story goes. All right, you start out with Hosea and Amos. And Hosea and Amos deal primarily with the fall of the northern kingdom in 722. That's their primary focus. That's what they're looking at. That's what they're all about. Then you move on over to Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. And those three, their primary focus is the time of Assyrian dominance and then the eventual fall of Assyria. So we're tracking. We've had one catastrophe with our first two. Now we've got another catastrophe with our next group. And then here's the big one. Habakkuk and Zephaniah, they are dealing with the fall of the southern kingdom, the destruction of the temple in 586. And that is when many of us start to talk about the exile proper, right? God's people get taken out of the land that Cindy just described to us, and they get taken to Babylon, and that is the exile. So then we're going to skip over the exile and go over to Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And those guys are our hopeful ones. They deal with the return from the exile in 539, when they rebuild the temple and are trying to get the people back on track. So once you put all of these guys together, you've got something kind of like Mamma Mia. You've got this continual narrative with each of these individual books, and they're all woven together to tell this larger historical narrative. 
Now, one of the things that comes up also in the Book of the Twelve are these, um, these overarching themes. And the way that I like to talk about it is that these prophets together, they're being woven together to tell this larger narrative of the people of God with these different waves of chaos and catastrophe that are coming by. But the prophets are consistently saying, guys, you need to have the vision to see as God sees. And what they're doing with each new wave of divine action or chaos is they're calling people into this reality. They're saying what you're seeing on the ground is not the world as it could be. It's this call to see the world as it could be rather than the world as it is, the world that you see in front of you. And part of that call is this idea that the prophets are calling to the people again and again to recognize God as the creator, the giver of life, and not to turn to all these other things, these lesser fears, right? Not to turn to Baal or Molech or Chemosh or anything else that might be out there, but instead to keep your eyes focused on the giver of life. And if you do that, you will also recognize the holiness of all humanity as the image bearers of God, right? So if you can recognize that God is the creator, the giver of life, then you can also see God's people, the humanity that God has created, God's image bearers, are also holy. And so you might not get caught up in things like selling the righteous for a pair of shoes, something like that. We hear about that in Amos. Um, You might not be inclined to steal somebody else's home. We hear about that in Micah. If you can recognize humanity is holy, But not only that, the call of the prophets over and over again throughout the 12 is to recognize all of creation is holy. Because when humans fail to recognize the creator and fail to treat one another as holy, creation itself suffers. All of those things, the things, the grain, the wine, and the oil, the things that the Um, the land produces, if you're not recognizing God and you're not recognizing one another, certain people won't be able to bring their sacrifice to God. And God won't get that grain, wine, and oil that you can sacrifice to God. Um, So all of this kind of hangs together. When you recognize the creator, you're also going to recognize the um, holiness of God's creation, both human and non-human. And that is flowing throughout the book of the 12. This notion that like, we've really got to hang on to this idea that God is the giver of all life. So one of the other things that runs throughout the book of the 12 is this, this idea of trying to deal with who God is. Who is God the creator? And so what the 12 is going to do again and again is it's going to go back to Exodus. When we hear who God is, God introduces God's self. And God says, hey, I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All really good stuff, right? This is the kind of God I like. Then there's the other side of the coin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, 
but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we've got kind of two, two sides of a coin here. We've got God's beautiful mercy up top and then God's justice down below. And what the 12 is going to do over and over again is have this kind of tug of war between, man, how is God going to show up this time? Is God going to be gracious or is God going to show up and punish? Which one will it be? Justice or mercy? So, there you go. Will God choose mercy or judgment? The book of Joel, within the minor prophets, or the book of the twelve, knows exactly how this works. You probably know this guy, like the guy who's, you're like, gosh, I really don't know what God is up to. And this person shows up and they're like, let me tell you, this is how God works. So Joel has all the answers. And Joel knows exactly um, how God is supposed to be working. And so Joel says to the people who have fallen into this sin of not recognizing who God is, oppressing the poor, and mistreating all creation, Joel's like, this is what you guys got to do. You need to return to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. For the Lord, look at this, he quotes from Exodus, that divine character that we just heard about. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then Joel says, who knows? Maybe God will, return, will turn and relent. So Joel is drawing on that gracious character of God, which is what we all do, right? Like if you're a white lady like me and you get pulled over by the police, you don't have to worry about other things. You just have to worry about whether or not you're going to get a ticket. And so my hope is always that the officer will be gracious and compassionate. Who knows? Maybe they'll relent even though I was speeding, right? And that's what Joel wants for the covenant people, the people of God. Joel says, maybe God will be merciful to us, the descendants of Abraham. Who knows? So if God's chosen people will do these things, if they'll fast, if they'll put on sackcloth, if they will weep, if they will mourn, and if they will gather everybody to the temple and do this, who knows? Maybe God will be merciful. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's hope so. But then as you go on in the book of Joel, what you find, oh, that's a thumbs up. God will be merciful. Back in the day when on Facebook you only had thumbs up, thumbs down, this is what we're dealing with here. Okay. Um, who knows, maybe God will be merciful. However, for everyone who is not a part of the people of God, those outsiders that are kind of meanies, right? In each of those waves of catastrophe that we saw, the Assyrians were mean to the people of God. The Babylonians were mean to the people of God. So for all of them, Joel's like, I know what's going to happen to them. God says, I will not clear the guilty. So they get the thumbs down. Joel's way of thinking is really cut and dry. Joel's like, this is how it's going to happen. God gives good things to God's people, and then God judges the people who are mean. I kind of like that version of God, honestly. I'm like, yeah, good things to the people who love God, and then bad things to the meanies. That tends to be something that should work out. And if God wasn't so chaotic, maybe that would be the way that things would work out. But instead, in the book of the 12, God's a little chaotic. So 
entered Jonah. Now, this is a weird book in the book of the 12 because everything else in the 12 is poetic, right? You've got this beautiful verse. Like if you opened your Bible right now or like scrolled on your phone, I guess that's what people do now, you would see that it's in verses like poetry, but then you're turning, you get to Jonah and you're like, whoa, here's some prose. I guess I got a narrative about a weird dude that gets swallowed by a fish. And so it's a whole new thing. So enter Jonah into Joel's lovely little conversation about how God should act. And Jonah is there to say, look at your pretty little theology. I will burn it to the ground because I know about the chaotic God. So if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, what, what you find in here is really satire. You might be old enough like me to remember back in the day when Stephen Colbert had a show called The Colbert Report, where he pretended to be somebody that he wasn't. He pretended to be this kind of Tucker Carlson right-wing pundit type guy in order to make fun of Tucker Carlson right-wing pundit kind of guys, right? So what the book of Jonah is going to do is create a character named Jonah, who is a very reluctant prophet So when God says to Jonah, I'm going to need you to go to Nineveh, which just so happens to be the capital of Assyria, and remember how Assyria was mean and bad? I mean, these guys are like the colonizers of colonizers, and not only that, they are ruthless jerks. I'm trying, I can't think of a <laughs> a non-cuss wordy way to say it. Um, they are ruthless jerks. They will come into your town and they will impale your people and skin them alive. And if they don't do that, they'll take them out with fish hooks. That's just the way they roll. And God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to those people. And Jonah's like, uh, thank you, no. I will not be doing that. And so Jonah goes to the one place where he figures God probably isn't. Because in Jonah's mind... God is the God of the covenant people, and God lives where Deuteronomy says God lives, in Jerusalem, in the temple. That is where God belongs. And so if Jonah can just get to the sea, maybe God won't be there. But you guys know how the story goes. God is the God of the sea, too. And a big old storm comes up, and Jonah gets thrown overboard and swallowed by a big old fish or sea monster depending on how you look at it. But that's kind of a bummer, right? And then, after three days, that fish spits him out, and the poor guy finally goes to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, where the jerks are. And when he gets there, I kid you not, like I've been on mission trips in my life growing up as a good evangelical, and I've preached to people and I've been like, turn to Jesus, every head bow, every, bowed every eye closed, and like, will somebody please just raise their hand and come to Jesus? And it didn't really happen for me, but for Jonah, when he goes to Nineveh, he preaches a five-word sermon, and man, those people turn it right around. I mean, this is one of the most pristine repentance narratives that you've ever heard. They go all out. So in Jonah, the people fast. They put on sackcloth. They cry out to God. And they include everyone, even the king. And when news reaches the king 
that Jonah has showed up and said, hey, if you guys don't repent, God's going to destroy you. The king says, we've got to do this. And he reenacts this request to all people. And he says, even though you guys are already doing it, I need you to fast, put on sackcloth, cry out to God, include everyone in the king in true king fashion. I feel like maybe he never had hung out with cows and sheep before because <laughs> the king goes, everybody put on sackcloth, even the livestock. And so I just like, the book of Jonah is so funny. I just like to imagine the people in Nineveh being like, okay, I got to get some sackcloth on this cow. Like I have a cat, my little cat Spanky. I'm just imagining like, Spanky, hold still. We're repenting. Come on. And so it's amazing because they go, it's like a way overdone repentance. It's beautiful. Even the cattle repent. This is great. And if you'll remember what the prophet Joel called the people to. Joel said, all y'all covenant people, the people of God, you need to fast, put on sackcloth, weep and mourn, and gather everybody to the temple. Some good similarities there. See, the people of Nineveh enact the repentance that the covenant people were supposed to do. And they do it away from the temple in Nineveh, that place where Jonah couldn't have imagined God would be. God in Nineveh? That's insane. And if you're reading along in Jonah, what you'll find is that the king of Nineveh the one who sends his armies to colonize and enact violence against God's covenant people, this guy, the king of Nineveh, echoes Joel. The king himself says, who knows, if we do all of this, God may relent and change God's mind. If we do this, God might shuv and nahum. Which is precisely, exactly what Joel says. So it seems to be happening here is whoever put together the book of Jonah sure as heck knew about Joel. Knew about Joel's pretty little theology that said God's graciousness and mercy is here for us. God's covenant people. And what the author of Jonah does is take Joel's own words and say, oh, Would you look at the Ninevites? Look what they did. In fact, this king holds out the same kind of hope that the covenant people do. Well, God does decide to have mercy on the Ninevites. And this is greatly distressing for our wayward prophet, Jonah. He makes this face like Rachel from Glee, and he's like, that is not how this is supposed to work but it seems like he had a little inkling that maybe it would work this way. Because right after God's like, yeah, I guess I'll just kind of, I'll spare them. They did the repentance they were supposed to do. And right after that, Jonah has this response. He says to God, oh, I knew it. 
This is what I said while I was in my own land. I knew that you were a gracious God, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So Jonah is quoting this. He's quoting this character of God that's supposed to be only for the covenant people. But look, it showed up in Nineveh. And Jonah is not happy. And I don't, I don't want to make light of anybody who has ever thought to themselves, I'd rather die than live. But I do think that this part of Jonah is trying to actually be funny. Jonah is acting like a toddler here. Because after God has decided to have mercy on the Ninevites, and Jonah goes, oh, I knew you were gracious. I'm so sick of you. Jonah goes, please take my life for it's better for me to die than to live. And then God's like, dude, doesn't say dude, but still. God goes, is it right for you to be this angry? And Jonah does not even answer. This I've seen with my kids a million times. When my daughter, when she was a toddler, her granola bar broke, and it was the end of the world. And I'm sure you have seen this before with toddlers. It was the end of the world. And I was like, are you right to be so angry? And she was like, ah. So God says to Jonah, are you right to be so angry? Jonah doesn't even answer. He folds his arms and marches away and sits outside of the city. And it says he sat down to wait to see what would happen. So he's still like, fingers crossed. Maybe God won't be gracious after all. Maybe that justice that God is supposed to do, God will actually do that. It doesn't actually happen, right? You might know how the story goes. A bush grows. Jonah gets nice and comfy, waiting to see if God will do the justice. And then the bush dies. And then Jonah gets really hot. And Jonah says, I'm so hot, I wish I could die. And God's like, you care more about that bush than these people, man? And Jonah doesn't say anything else. But I love, at the end of Jonah... God says, you care more about that bush than all of those people and their animals. I love that God remembers the animals at the end. That's like the last word in Jonah. God's like, all those people and their livestock that put on the sackcloth. You better believe it. So Jonah wanted God to not be chaotic. Jonah wanted God to play by the rules and enact justice against the bad guys legitimately horrible people. But God included in God's mercy the least likely candidates. And I think that if we look at the larger story of the Book of the Twelve and the way that this narrative of chaos that washes over people again and again plays out, we should have expected this all along. Cindy told us about how Deuteronomy lays out this vision that is chaotic because you're including farmers and shepherds and they don't like each other. And you're including people from L.A., and San Diego, and San Francisco, and then you get some crazy North Carolinians in there. You're including all of these people. This is just one step further. We're going to include even the Ninevites, even the worst. 
the worst of the worst, because they are not outside of God's mercy. Even they can repent and turn to God and have that prophetic vision to see as God sees, to know that their violence and their colonizing are things that they needed to turn from and come to the Lord with true repentance. And just like Danielle preached about recently, that kind of Damascus Road experience where Paul has this huge turnaround because Paul has encountered Jesus. It seems so outlandish, it seems crazy. Just as crazy as these horrible people turning to God. But really, we should expect it. At every turn in scripture, we should expect that the least likely candidates will become a part of the covenant people. That those who you least expect will become a part of those who can see as God sees. And so that, my friends, is what the story of Jonah is all about. And when you read the book of the 12 as a whole, you can see this wrestling, this back and forth between people who are like, I want God's mercy for me, but not for them. And then other people, like whoever wrote Jonah, who have come to the table to make fun of those people that only want God's mercy for themselves and not for others. Um, And that is rather chaotic because it includes people that maybe I would rather not were included. And it includes even you yourselves, if you think, gosh, I'm, I'm too far gone to be included. God's mercy always far outmatches God's justice, which is really good news. <laughs>